Hey there, Knicks fans. How are you? It is your boy, Jonathan Macri, with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School Podcast. I am, uh, well, I don't know when's the last time I've been quite this excited to bring on a guest. Um, and, and it's not for the reasons you might think. Yes, he is the lead TV critic for Rolling Stone magazine. Yes, he just authored or co-authored a um, wildly successful book about my favorite television show, of all time. But mostly, I get to have him on here to thank him for keeping me sane after these terrible losses after terrible loss by sending me tank memes that one is more creative than the next. Um, and of course, I am talking about Alan Seppenwall of Rolling Stone. How are you, Alan? Uh, I'm all right. It sounds like Frank Nielakina might be playing again. So that's, you know, life couldn't possibly be better. Listen, that you you know what Frank Nilakina is for us for us uh, Franco fans now. He is the carrot that is being dangled in front of us. Guess what? We're gonna keep walking. That carrot's just gonna keep getting further away, man. I I, <laughs> I don't know. I hope he plays. But then there was a report earlier that that he's he's still questionable because he didn't go through a full practice. Um, how has this season been for you? Let, let's start there. It's been a strange season because, you know, initially it was you come in, you think, all right, well, watch the kids. It'll be a developmental year. Maybe if everything goes quite right, KP will come back at a certain point and then we'll see what we've got. And maybe we can be tempting enough that, you know, crazy notion Kevin Durant might want to come here. Uh, and instead, things obviously Porzingis never materialized. And then he got traded and I was really upset for a while before making my peace with it. Um but it was kind of hard to even really enjoy the developmental aspect of it because Frank, when he played, was playing terribly and was being yo-yoed in and out of the lineup. Knox has mostly been a mess, although it's been nice to see him playing a little bit better uh, this month. And Mitchell just wasn't playing. And then finally he started playing, and that became the main reason to enjoy Knicks games. But it's it's been a weird year, even for a year that I went in expecting and kind of even wanting them to be terrible. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'll say this. I mean, I don't know if we've ever had um, a year quite like this one, because even even in years past, um, you know, maybe smart smart fans knew obviously that they were going to be bad. I don't think there was ever a year where we went into it knowing that they were going to be quite this bad, and 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 the smart ones knew it. Um, I know you're a fan of Frank, just like I am. And my theory all year has been if, like, Frank didn't exist and there wasn't this backstory of him getting yo-yoed and him, is is he just terrible or is it the organization's fault, that this entire year would have been, like, 27% easier to swallow. What do you think about that? I think there's some of that. I think in general, Fizdale, uh, and we could talk a lot about Fizdale, Fizdale kind of vexes me a lot of the time, and the Frank was the main flashpoint, but I think there's just a lot of other things he does that defy explanation to a degree. Um, and th this was, you know, as, as a blind Frank believer, despite all the ample evidence he provided this season, that, that was kind of tough for sure. It, it was, and I think the, the fact that he still remains possibly out, even though he's able to play, um, it doesn't make it any less vexing. Do you think that um, this is like the the Moutier thing? 
do you have a theory? Because I have theories on like what what is going on here, but like what, they're all they're equally implausible because nothing really makes sense as to why he continues, you know, showing this much support for him. Do you have anything? Um, well, the theory is not a uh, wildly optimistic one, which is like Fisdale and or Scott Perry think this guy is good at basketball or is capable of being good at basketball. And when they prove that, like it's going to be a cherry in their development Sunday. And I just think at this point you've seen like at best he is, you know, a combo guard off the bench for a bad team. Yeah, right now that's about where he is. He he doesn't pass and his defense is atrocious. So that's you know the nights when he's you know getting to the bucket and scoring are kind of fun, but it's empty calories. I mean it's it's not because of the contract situation and everything else. It doesn't feel significantly different to me than like when Jared Jack or Michael Beasley were going off last year. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny. I actually now that I I'm thinking about it, I wonder if 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 you just took Moutier and Frank off the team and neither of them were here. And it was just kind of, and Smith had stayed healthy. I feel like this this year would be like fifty percent easier to swallow, but of course that's not that's not the case. Um, where are you at on Knox? Because I know you were a big big Knox critic at different points this season. Ah, uh, uh, Knox, I, I didn't like the pick. I don't like. Who did if, you want instead? Um, I probably would have wanted you know Michael Bridges. I would have been fine with Miles Bridges. In hindsight, we should have taken. I'm going to mispronounce the name, but Shea Gillius Alexander. I from, think that was no, that was good. Okay, like if you're going to take someone raw from Kentucky, I feel like he was much closer to being a finished product, you know, and more versatile and more in a position of need given our you know century long search for a point guard than Knox. The, the, my issue with Knox is he just didn't seem good. At anything, initially. <laughs> no, no, and that's like, and obviously you can get better things. Like, but you look at Frank, for instance. Frank is one of the worst offensive players in the NBA right now. There's no way about that. You Very know, true. you just look at the stats, you look at the eye test. That's a problem. But you can see a path to some degree of NBA success for Frank because he's a really good pick and roll defender. You know, and everyone in the NBA plays the pick and roll. So if at some point Frank can either get more confident with his playmaking or his shot starts falling and the form looks good, so it should be falling more than it does, then he's a useful role player at minimum. I look at Knox and it seems like he has to get better significantly at almost everything to be a valuable NBA player. There's just like, I don't, I can't look at him and say, well, here's what he, you know, here's what his specialty is going to be, uh, and I certainly don't see him being, a, you know, a you know jack of all trades kind of guy for a team. I mean, he's been shooting better lately, and that's good. But how are you feeling about him? Um, I'm in. Incur- here's my thing. I have said all year. I think he's going to be a special scorer, but I don't know that he's going to be a special player. And it's an important distinction, and I think too often when people talk about, well, he's a bust, we know what he's going to be already, I think they, they kind of get get those two things muddled. I, I think I, I never want to put the coffin on a guy after you know before his rookie year is already over in terms of the things, you know, saying that he can't do certain things. But I will say this, in terms of being a scorer, like if you look throughout, you know, um, NBA history at guys who have taken as many threes as he's had. He's already taken over 300 threes, and he's like on the cusp of being a 35% shooter. And you just look at those two numbers, 35% on like more than 300 attempts. It's not a 
bad list. It's like there's some duds on there. There's like there's a Brandon Jennings. There's a there's a Gary Neal sighting. Um, there's our <laughs> there, there's our friend Tim Hardaway Jr. In fact, oh god. Um, but when you consider the fact that Knox could do it at his size, um, and he does have the ability to get into the paint, and like he's starting to figure out those moves a little bit. Like I still think he's going to be a guy that can give you an efficient twenty a game. Whether you can play him on the on a, for a winning team because of what he does at the other end, I think that's that's the tough one. But then you know it goes back to to what you've already alluded to. What is what are the philosophies? And I guess if I had one most frustrating point for this season, and I feel like you may join me on this, yes. it's like what is our what is the philosophy? What are we building here? What is our ethos as a team moving forward? Is it just we want to make ourselves available to stars and we'll, and we have a coach that we know stars like and we'll kind of figure it out when we get here. We play a system that's appealing to stars. Like, is that. But, it, but what is the system? I mean, have you seen a system this year? Um, be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. <laughs> Age. I was, yeah. Okay. No, that, I mean, I'm joking, but that's. Here's honestly what I think the system is, is it's a system that highlights the individual talents of brilliant players. And the problem this year is that, oh, wait a minute, we forgot that last ingredient. Um, now, is that going to be a selling point? I have no idea. Um, but that's the closest I could come up with. Why? Do you have anything else? No, I, I really don't. And it's funny because he, t- the thing with Fisdale is he says a lot of things that sound interesting when he says them. And then his actions completely belie his words. So, you know, back in preseason, remember, he talked a lot about, you know, we, we don't want anyone to have the ball for more than three seconds. He was talking about high percentage shots. I remember modern, that. Modernizing the offense, all of that. And then within a couple of games, it was all isozo. And I like Trier, and I'm, he's a nice find. He was a good, you know, pickup by Perry there. But it's sort of like everything went out the window almost instantly. And then he'll talk he'll talk about the dungeon and, you know, why it's sometimes good for a player, you know, to need to sit and take a step back. Good God, did Kevin Knox need to go in the dungeon for a while there, you know, sometime in January or February. I mean, he was a mess on the court. And I'm trying to be optimistic about him, but, like, you know, everything that was said about Frank or Burke – or Dotson, when they had, you know, their time in the dungeon, you know, applied doubly so to him, and it never happened. It's just, it's very, it's to the point where, like, I've almost stopped paying attention to Fisdale's statements. And maybe you just, you can't bother with it this year because the team is such a mess, and we're going to start over almost from scratch next year with free agents or trades or whatever. But, you know, I really don't know what to think about the guy. I I've I mean you you follow me I you know I'm a supporter. You, you like you're a Fisdale fan I know I'm a Fisdale fan because my you know I'm a, I'm still a lawyer at heart and I my one skill in life is bullshitting that's what I could do <laughs> I I do it well and I appreciate others who do it well and he does it as well as anyone and I but I mean all kidding aside I think I think he does have because I mean look he was he he cut his teeth in Miami and it, it's it, that would seem that gives me confidence. I, I mean, and the fact that um, he just kept coming up. I, I've mentioned this in the past. He kept coming up on those lists before he got his first head coach job. Is like this is the guy you want to watch out for. Is like the next great head coach. Was everybody who thought that like completely wrong, or is it just he was given this team and he says a lot of things to try to just get on to the next day and get the media off his case? And there's some things that he has a plan for, and maybe we're just not privy to them. That's kind of what I think. 
Um, I have my guesses, but like, yeah, again, how could we know? What evidence do we have to go on that it either is or isn't working? We don't have any evidence. So that's the ho- that's the hopeful thing for sure. But then, like, you cut, you look at like the the player acquisition profile of guys. Le- leave Steve Mills out of it. You just look at guys that like Perry has brought in since he's been here, and a lot of them seem sort of along the same lines as a Kevin Knox, which is these Absolutely. guys. What? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, like, you know, Mitchell Robinson is obviously the big exception, and he's by far the best acquisition this front office has made in a very long time, going back probably at least to the Porzingis pick. Um, but, like, almost everyone else they've brought in, it's like they like someone who's a scorer. They're not necessarily a great scorer, um, but they're a scorer. They're not, you know, they don't have well-rounded games. They don't defend. They don't always necessarily rebound or pass pretty well. But they can score, and I feel like, you know, maybe Fisdale likes that kind of guy too because I, I can't otherwise justify the man crush that he has on Moutier and to a lesser extent Knox. Knox, at least, is the lottery pick we should be developing, so I get throwing him into the fire to a degree, maybe not to this degree, but to to a degree. But, like, playing Moutier a lot, handing Trier the keys to the kingdom, like, within a day or two of the season starting, there, there's just a lot of stuff that makes me – concerned and maybe that all goes away when we sign better players in the offseason and you're right and there's just no point to trying to discern anything from here but uh, i don't know I, I we can't know and i guess that's my point is like I, I am i saying he's a great coach no i'm not saying he's a great coach i'm just saying to to cast judgment this year is silly and but to your point and this is where i think it, it maybe um you'd be able to speak to this because you god knows i've interviewed just some of the most powerful people in the world of tv I feel like a, a head coach is cut from the same cloth in this respect. These guys have to be egomaniacs to a certain extent. And I believe like, you know, like a, a TV producer or something or a, t- a director or an actor feels like I'll be able to like when, when, it, when push comes to shove, I'll be able to get this done. I think Fisdale thinks that when push comes to shove, he'll be able to teach them defense and passing and like a system. And he's trying to just, you know, get the tough stuff out of the way now, like, let Trier go out and figure out how to get a bucket at this level. Let Kevin Knox do that. Let Mitchell Robinson do that. And I think that comes back to Frank, where he, he was mad at Frank because Frank didn't, like, put himself in a position to be that type of player. Because he's not that type of player. He's a smart, cerebral, like, I want to get everybody involved type of player. And that's, you know, that's where we get back to. But but it's really fascinating because he, I, I feel like he had did take that approach with Knox he did take it with Trier but if you've watched Mitch play Mitch plays more within himself than any player I've seen on the Knicks in a long long time that's because he's in the second coming (laughs) no but but what I'm saying is like Mitch never almost never tries to do something he can't do he fouls too much and that's something he's going to grow out of but even that sort of him trying to play his game and he recognizes that his game is blocking shots dunking the ball you know He's and maybe not, they've maybe they've told him like, listen, this is what we we want you to be essentially. I, I know, but but what I'm saying is, but like, I feel like Kevin Knox at some point this season might have benefited from a a similar thing, like go for the boards every time, go stand in the corner, we'll get you the ball. It's a great it's it's a great point. Um, his rebounding is something that I've actually paid attention to. It's gotten better. It's gotten better month by month. So I've been encouraged by that. Um, if he if he could get his rebounding average over five. With those stats that I told you before, he'll join a pretty exclusive, exclusive um, 
group because not many it's not many rookies who've come in and, and shot threes like him and, and could get at least some semblance of, of rebounds. But yeah, he needs to improve there. You brought uh, how, up, how old is he, by the way? I think he's 19. Is he 19 wait, still? Wait, no, what? 19? No. Is he 19 years old? He, he have, can't be 19. Have we heard that one before? I don't think I have. I don't think so either. Um, you brought up Mitchell Robinson. Um, are you trading him? Are you including him for a trade for Anthony Davis? Where are you at? Uh, Here's what I'm thinking. I'm trying to figure out what is the Nixie move and then obviously do the opposite of that. Is the Nixie move to trade the 20-year-old Wonderkin for the guy who could leave in a year? Or is it to bypass the chance to get literally maybe the best 20 – what is Anthony Davis? 26? Yeah. The best like under 30 player to ever be traded in the history of the league on your team? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know. And obviously, like, Anthony Davis is a much better player than Mitchell Robinson right now. Anthony Davis is also going to eat an enormous amount of the cap. So even if, like, you can get him to agree to sign an extension, you know, like he says, all right, we're going to trade for you. I will stay here. You know, it's still, like, Mitchell Robinson is maybe the – other than certain max players, Mitchell Robinson might have the best value contract in the NBA right now. For the, the level of production he can do for the ridiculously dirt-cheap contract he fired his agent for, you know, signing him to. Um, <laughs> Wise move, like, by the way. Yeah, no, that's really it's, – it's really remarkable. And – but I I feel like if we're, if we're getting Durant and we're getting Kyrie and, you know, we're the Knicks, so my uh, – I would say the odds on those things happening are not great. If by some chance we get Durant, we get Kyrie – and then you also trade Mitchell and whatever our first-round pick is and some of our other young guys. For Davis, that's a hell of a big three, but the rest of the team is just nothing. Oh, I don't I don't worry about that. Like, I've heard people voice that concern. Listen, give me – that's a great problem to deal with. No, it's, it's certainly a much better problem to deal with than the teams we've had lately. Yeah. I'm just saying I, th- I think there's a middle ground. I think there's a middle ground where there you have – where you have the two superstars and you have a bunch of role players and you're not going to keep everybody and you know probably one or both of Knox and Neil Aquina does not have any business on a team being led by Durant and Kyrie but like Mitchell Robinson can play on any team with anybody oh right now point. today like yeah yes you know you stick you stick him on the Bucks you stick him on the Warriors you know anywhere the the Raptors like. He could go to town. So, and and that's why I have some hope because I actually think we have two of those guys. And I I don't know. I've actually never heard you talk about this guy. I think Dotson is kind of that player too. I know his off ball defense and sometimes his on ball defense can be pretty atrocious, but he has the skills to be a good defender. And the guy makes threes. Um, he's got good size. I like Dotson. I feel like you could plug him into any starting lineup this team puts out there next year with Mitch and then whoever else, and you'd be you know you'd be good. I would, I would think I'd probably rather have him as a seventh or eighth man, but I also think he would be – like depending on the offensive profile of the free agents we bring in, I think he would be a perfectly fine complementary player to that. And he is also on a dirt-cheap contract for one more year. So that's nice. So it really, it just sort of depends on who we're able to keep and who we would have to give up. I, I would really hate to give up Mitch uh, to get Anthony Davis. But here's, here's where I'm crazy, and here's the bigger question to me. Sure. If the 14% – gamble pays off and we get zion williamson would you trade zion for anthony davis i've gone back and forth on this maybe 20 times over the last few months i could say something and i might change my answer tomorrow i don't have 
I have so little conviction on an answer. Uh, I'm just being honest. I it feels sure. it feels wrong to to yes. to say yes. I would trade Zion for Anthony Davis because, and I'm like, uh, I think. I think actually, and I don't think I've ever said this on the show, I think some of the Zion hype, like it's a lot of hype. Like when, like has there ever been quite this much hype around a player other than LeBron James coming out of, you know, coming into the draft? I don't, I don't know. Right? Well, I, because I think the thing is he's, like people have said he's probably the best uh, draft prospect since Anthony Davis, but he's more fun to watch than AD. That's like, the thing, he's so much fun. Yes, AD is a great fundamental player who does like everything, but you know, but he doesn't like jump way the heck above the rim. You know, he doesn't go out and guard wings and and do all these other just freaky physical things that Zion can do. And he's also kind of injury prone, which doesn't necessarily mean that Zion wouldn't be because we've never seen a player with his two hundred eighty pounds. That, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. like. If, if he blows out a knee at some point, then he's post-injury Larry Johnson, and at that point, I would certainly rather have Anthony Davis, even if Davis misses 20 games a year. But, God, it would pain me so much to see Zion Williamson in New Orleans just dunking the hell out of everything, no matter how great Anthony Davis is. And I know he is a great player who, you know, once upon a time, I prayed Kristaps Porzingis might grow up to be half as good as yeah, I, I I did too. Um, and the other thing about Davis, we should say, is in the the way the league is now, when once a superstar changes teams, you know whether it's KD this summer or AD, it's like you're gonna get that guy until he's bored and he's ready to move on. Yeah. Like I don't know if there's ever gonna be a chance to have a Tim Duncan esque run for a team. Yep. Um And God knows Zion, he's. He seems like maybe he's the type of guy that wants to get different experiences in different cities and will go, you know, the LeBron type of career. I have a feeling that's going to become the norm rather than the exception. But, like, the mere hope that we have someone that we could watch and just latch on to. And he seems fit for New York, but I, I you know, who knows? If uh, Let me ask you this. If you could have, and I think I know what you're going to say, if you could have Zion or Kevin Durant, which one are you, one are you taking? Zion. Zion. Yeah, I figured. No, but because here's the thing: du- like Durant would be the best player the Knicks have had this century. Durant would be the best player the Knicks have had since Patrick Ewing. Might be the best player the Knicks have had since Walt Frazier. Yeah, like Durant would be crazy. Durant is also going to be 31 years old, uh, and if you look sort of at the numbers, he is starting to like begin the downward slide. It's not a steep slide yet, and I think you know Durant even at 35 is still going to be an amazing player to have. But you're definitely the best of Kevin Durant. We have already seen that in the NBA. Whereas, you know, so you're going to get like five really good years of a future Hall of Famer, but not the best years he can provide. Whereas the hope is with Zion, you're getting him as he's trending up. Yeah, no, you're absolutely. And the other thing about Durant, and I don't, I think this is a fair comparison. It's like, I think, but I think next season. Well, Giannis has kind of uh, accelerated his his timetable. I was going to say Kevin Durant could still be the best player in the league for another year or two. You know, top two or three. But like, if he doesn't get the right guy next to him, um, and the, and the thing I was thinking is, I I want to talk about the Sopranos a little bit, and this is, this is my first kind of uh, you know, sure. cross reference here. It's like imagine James Gandolfini on that show without Edie Falco, like. Yeah. 
James Gandolfini, but I, I would argue he's the best screen actor, forget television actor of this century. Um, but if he didn't have Falco to like kind of offset him, there would be something missing. Like if Kevin Durant comes here without, you know, and, and, he, and who's the guy? Is it Kyrie? Is it, you know, who, who would you be your ideal running mate? Uh, I mean, probably Kyrie. I mean, the worry, the, the worry with Kyrie is, you know, we've seen this at times with the Celtics this year. He, he, there's too much hero ball. He doesn't get other guys involved as much. A lot of the reports about why Durant wants to come here is so he can play point forward a little more. Yeah. So I don't know how that would mesh together. Kyrie is also somebody you got to hide on defense. But admittedly, if we've got Mitch, if Frank, you know, is playing now, you know, you, like you could have some other role players around them that might ultimately be okay. But like Knox at the moment, even if he's starting, is not someone you can rely on at all on defense. So if you start having multiple holes. You have to plug. That's a problem. My thing is, as long as we get Durant, I'm okay with, like, getting Kyrie, getting Kemba Walker, getting any of a number of people. But you have to have that one genuine superstar uh, in order to to make that work. If Kemba comes here on his own, like, with some lesser free agent, that's a mess. That's like, you know, the hamster wheel of mediocrity and you're stuck. That's a disaster. Um, although I, yes. I, even though he'd be the best point guard we've had in 30 years. Yeah, no. And I was, uh, Zach Lowe actually this morning, he was talking, or I, I guess they recorded yesterday. He had, um, Ryan Rosillo on his pod. And, and I guess there's been some rumblings coming out of Charlotte that, uh, Kemba is like, there's a lot, that, that window is a lot more open than it was seemingly earlier this year about him leaving. So, um, but yeah. I'd be fine with him as a Kevin Durant sidekick. I, sure. In certain ways, I think he might – Kyrie's the better player, but I think maybe Kemba could complement him better. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about half the time. I'm a TV critic. No, dude, saying, you're like, right. I think, I, I think you have a point there. You know, so like if, if it's the two of them, if it's – you know, regardless of who the second guy is, you need Durant to make it work. If you're not getting Durant, then like – then you got to pull – step on the brakes. Yep. Ease back say, all right, you know, we're, we're going to roll it over or we're going to, like, try to use cap space for trades, yep. you know, go that route, which this team has never been willing to do at any of the times they've had cap space in my life, which is very few times, but it's happened, um, you know, and just wait because, like, I don't want the Band-Aid approach. I don't want the equivalent of getting Amare and Carmelo because we saw how that turned out. When you get guys who are paid like superstars but are on the next tier at best – that's a problem. It, in some ways, it would be the most painful moment of like, and obviously we've had, <laughs> we've had a list of contenders. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, we've had a few. But in in some ways, with the buildup and with almost at this point, and I, I I don't even want to put this out into the universe, but like there, it's almost like we think it's a better than fifty fifty chance. Some people think it is a better than fifty fifty chance that he's coming, and if it didn't happen. And they signed other guys who were just, like you said, in the hamster wheel. And you want to know what the worst part is? And I, I said this on another pod, and I'll tell you. Would there be anything more painful than if he went to the Nets? I, and I think that I, I – just the, how much does the thought, of, the thought of that make your skin crawl? It, it makes my skin crawl. Because I, I here's the thing. I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy who chose the Knicks over the Nets. I know you are. Jersey. So I chose the Knicks, and then at various points I had, like, very good reason and incentive to jump off 
the sinking ship that I've been rooting for for so long, particularly after the Jeremy Lin thing, where, like, I had a lot of friends saying, dude, just root for the Nets. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And that would have been pain, too. But I didn't do it. So I've stuck with the stupid Knicks all this time. And if instead Durant and Kyrie go to Brooklyn, uh, that would be bad. No, it, it would be brutal. Um, so, all right. Well, you just you just said it. You're you're a Jersey guy. So I want to. I can't let you go without talking a little bit about the book and about about the show that you <laughs> that you wrote the book about. If, if you don't mind, of course. Um, so you uh, obviously were with the star um, the Star Ledger, um, yes. The paper that Tony gets every morning, yes. Um, and. I am curious because my experience watching the show, which you just wrote the Soprano Sessions on, um, uh, I've read the book, by the way. I, I I should actually be mad at you because there were things like I had to do for my job that just didn't get done um, for weeks at a time because I could put down this book. Um, so, you know, you owe me some of my, my hours of my life back. But I, I'm, I'm sorry, Jonathan. No, I'm it's, sorry. it's okay. Um and now I'm going to read it again because I want to watch the show again and read the book again at the same time. But anyway, so I was 16 in Staten Island when this show started. And I, I love in the book how you talk about there was, you know, this whole part of the fan base of the show that looked at it as, as what it is, which is arguably the, the pinnacle of, of achievement in television in, in the, you know, medium's history. And then there were other people who just kind of wanted to see people get whacked. I felt like I was in almost like a third category where... I turned on the show every every week, and it was like, and if my mother listens to this podcast, she will never let me hear the end of it. Um, it was like watching a home movie in some respects. <laughs> not not the whacking and like the violence part of it, but just the way like the way they talk to each other and like the mannerisms and all of that stuff. And I, I the reason I bring this to back to you being a Jersey guy, I feel like you would you would appreciate this. Has there ever been a show that like nailed the realistic aspect of just how the, these types of people, and I include myself, I am one of these types of people. I am an Italian from this area. Like how these people relate to each other, how they talk to each other. It, it, that's the part of the show that I feel doesn't get enough credit. No, and, the th- and that's what made it special, honestly, is, I mean, the original idea was David Chase, the creator of the show, you know, is an Italian-American from New Jersey. We grew up a few decades apart in neighboring towns. You know, I'm, I live one town over from where Tony Soprano lives, or I grew up there. And so originally the idea was he had a difficult relationship with his mother and his wife, Denise always said, you should make a show about that. And he could never figure out how to do it because, you know, who wants to watch a show about a screenwriter whose mom is a pain. (laughs) And then like at some point someone wanted him to, to turn the Godfather into a TV show. And he realized, Oh, what, wait a minute. What if I combine the two? So he's coming at this as a guy who knows stuff about the mob, you know, grew up around it to a degree, loves watching mob movies, but also just grew up as an Italian-American, you know, family guy in New Jersey, knowing people like Artie Bucco, like a lot of the, the characters who wandered through the show, but are not criminals. You know, so he already had that foundation to put in to make it feel like a real family, like real people. And then, oh, by the way, most of them are sociopath criminals. <laughs> Uh, yeah, by the way, um, yeah. I have to ask, how long did this book take to write? Uh, it took 
Matt and I, Matt Dollarsites, my co-author and I, we we're former newspaper men, so we tend to do everything on a deadline, which means like we signed the book deal about two years before it got published. We started seriously talking about it maybe a year before it got published. But as has happened on every other thing we've collaborated on, most of the writing got done in six months or less. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so the, I love the format, by the way, where you basically write I, – I, I don't know if I want to call them essays. It's because it's, it's – they're, I don't know, think pieces about every episode of the show. How would you, you describe could, you them? Could even, you could even call them recaps if you want. It's not my favorite I, word. No, I'm not going to call it a recap. But it's people know. It's, there, there are essays or reviews of every episode where we go deep on something or just the totality of that episode. Then we did a long series of interviews with David Chase – uh, going soup to nuts from the beginning to the end. And then we have some archival material on the back of the book dealing with, like, featuring some of our writing from the Star Ledger, some things that each of us wrote after Jim Gandolfini died, uh, et cetera. And, and by the way, one of the things in the back of the book is the interview that David Chase granted you, um, obviously, after the, the show was over, and you were the only person who got to ask him about the show. He didn't want to talk about it with anybody else other than you. What was that moment like when you found well, he, out? Well, he, he didn't even want to talk about it with me. That's well, I'm sure he did it. <laughs> you guys, it. The, the story is like a year before the finale aired, maybe even longer than that. I forget. It was either at, at the final season premiere or even the premiere before that, because it's the last two seasons were kind of this weird, you know, half and half thing. But at one of those premieres, I went up to David at the after party. I said, David, you know, where are you going to be the day after the finale airs? He says, probably I'll be, you know, Denise and I will go to our house in France. I said, could you could we talk that day? And he said, yes. So that, that was the last I thought of it. I did other interviews with him after. It never came up. Finally, a few weeks before the show's going to end, I call his assistant, Jason. I say, hey, Jason, you know, I just called and scheduled the, the interview with David that we talked about last year uh, for the day after the finale. And Jason's voice sounded very strange. He said, I'm going to have to call you back. Oh, my. He calls me back about an hour later. He says, Alan, I'm sorry, David's not doing the interview. <laughs> I said, what? So David, after you know, after you guys talked, David decided recently he doesn't want to talk about the finale at all. He doesn't want to take questions about it. He's going to France and is going to go radio silent. And I, you know, I was basically like, "But he promised." <laughs> and, and over like the next couple of weeks, I mounted this massive, you know, guilt offensive because you know my people, the Jews, were good at that. And, <laughs> Um, so both me and Terrence Winter, who is Chase's number two on the show sure, and who yeah. I had always gotten along with, we kind of both worked the, worked the referee enough until finally Chase very reluctantly was like, okay, I gave my word. I will do it. Here are the ground rules. And one of them is I'm not going to explain anything. You know, I'm not going to, you know, there's just questions I will refuse to answer. And he stayed true to that word, didn't he? <laughs> Yeah, and it's like if you read it, it's really not an insightful interview, but, you know, career-wise, it put me on the map as the one guy who got to talk to David Chase the day after The Sopranos finale aired. So I was I was very lucky in that regard, and he ultimately liked me and Matt enough that he was willing to do this new round of interviews for the book, which turned out better than either of us could have possibly hoped for. Yeah, and I'm, I'm obviously not going to give it away, but I will tell anybody listening to this, if you were a fan of the show, I think the way that you put it actually to, to Bill Simmons when you had your first interview with him, um, I guess it was a little over a month ago, that it won't – I think you said it, does, it doesn't tell you – you know, whether he dies or not, but you will feel a form of closure after you read what he has to say in this book. And that's exactly what I felt um, when I read it. I'm, I'm curious, though, in the moment when you watched the finale, what was your instant reaction when the screen went black? 
Um, I was watching it. HBO did a screening earlier that day at their offices on 42nd Street just because for newspaper people like me who knew they knew how to make a deadline. Mm -hmm. And so I was in the HBO screening room with about a dozen other writers I knew and a couple of HBO publicists. The screen went black and all of them will testify to this fact. I just started laughing. Oh, my God. Me, too. (laughs) It seemed like (laughs) such a David Chase thing to do just because – a, I'd been watching the show, you know, rabbinically for all these years, and B, I knew Chase a little bit, and it seemed like this this is the ultimate Sopranos moment right here, doing this. And, you know, obviously, and I'd been freaking out during the actual scene itself, as Meadow is taking forever to parallel park the car. Um, so it cast its spell on me, but when it cut to black, man, I thought that was, like, the ultimate troll of the audience. And since then, I've come, I've gone on a journey with the final scene and you know I do not laugh now when I watch it I just love it uh so do I I had the exact same reaction I watched it with um my best friend and my girlfriend at the time and both me and my best friend were on the exact same wavelength started laughing hysterically as my girlfriend at the time erupts in yelling at me because she thought I had turned off like she didn't she didn't realize what happened yes she's like I should thought I turned off the tv and she's like you know like I'm sure half of half of America experienced that um yes. yeah but if you but like you said if you really understood the show and I guess Chase you you kind of got it um I apologize if you said this in the book I did not catch it if you did go do, for it do you have a personal favorite episode of the show um well, we did. I did a list for Rolling Stone like a little before the book came out, where I did my top ten episodes. I put College as number one, and I think that probably is probably my favorite. But okay. like, there's episodes that are more fun to watch than College. You know, Pine Barrens is you know everybody's yeah. sort of you know fun good time episode of The Sopranos. Uh, there's a lot of others beyond that, but I think just sort of if you look at what the show is and the, like the whole family versus uppercase family conflict in the dynamics both tony on the road trip with meadow and what carmela is up to with father phil where she where he takes her confession back at the house like that to me is a really pure distillation of what the show is and it's a strange choice because almost no other characters are in it you know yeah. livia who i love is not in it paulie walnuts uncle jr none of them but just the the tony stuff and the carmela stuff is like that's the sopranos to me did i got i didn't see the list did did a make it anywhere on there um, I think it made, it was either on my list or Matt's list. Okay. We sort of talked about it. We decided like, it's okay for there to be some overlap, but we should try to share the wealth a little bit. So okay. I know for sure at least one of us did that. Yeah. That's, that's my number one. That fight, um, with, with him and Gloria is just, yes. uh, it's, it's, yeah, that's special. Um, all right. I, I just got, I, I, it's really a question. It's, it's more of a working theory and I'm going to try to tie it all together with this. Go. You have just this great point that you make throughout the book and I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying this where it's like this is a show about people who you know they don't change and they show signs of changing but they never really change and then we're here the viewer of The Sopranos watching it and it's like we almost it's like we're in suspense but we're sitting here and we're like we don't accept the fact that this is this is what these people are they are never going to change and then I thought about the Knicks and I'm I like, was, as you were saying that, I was thinking the exact same I, thing. This is an organization that it is, they are what they are. And here are me and you, two idiots. I have a podcast about it. You root <laughs> for this team. And we're like, but wait a minute. How's it going to end? It's, this has got to end well. And is there, does that parallel work for you? 
it does, and certainly there are some fairly rotten people who work at Madison Square Garden, of which there is a legal record of of that. There seems to be. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like I keep rooting. It's like, no, this is the time they're yeah, – it's like this is the offseason. They just do nothing. Do nothing. Just roll over the cap space. It's going to be fine. Oh, my God. They signed Tim Hardaway for $72 million. Uh, what? Yeah. Like, there's just a lot of that. But – Again, this is just me being a sucker. This is me believing that someone can change. I look at the Porzingis trade. Um, actually, like even if they don't sign a free agent, I kind of look at it as a good thing. Because I'm, uh, are you? I'm with let you. Me, I'm you with let you. me speak some blasphemy here. No, go for it. Okay. I love Porzingis. Porzingis made me so happy when I watched him. Kristaps Porzingis, at this stage in his career, with the injury history and the production, um, you know, and everything he's done is not a max player and he's about to be paid like a max player. Mm. And you know what I was just talking about before with you about like the Amare, you know, Melo teams where you run into the biggest kind of trouble in the NBA is when you play, when you pay someone the max and they're not worth it. Um, and so to that degree, like I, if he blossoms in Dallas and he and Luka Doncic are like this amazing Euro combination, that's going to hurt me to watch. But to a degree, I kind of appreciate Dallas taking on the risk of that for us. Sure. You know, while we try for something else. And knowing the Knicks, they're probably going to mess it up. But <laughs> you can always hope for something better. But I feel like if we actually had signed KP <laughs> to that contract I, 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 in, on this team, I just can't see it having ended well. You know, I thought about the trade this week um, when I read, I actually think Isola uh, had the t- had the quote from Kobe, like if I could have played my career anywhere other than LA, it would have been in New York. And I just thought about it, and I'm like, this is in a lot of ways either whatever one or one A, the most desirable destination to play basketball in the world. And the people running this team for the last whatever it is, 20 years, have never only once, literally one time, have they truly given themselves the chance to take advantage of that simple fact. And I, I feel like to, to have gone into the summer without giving themselves really the best chance to take advantage of the fact that this is the Mecca of basketball and perverse reasons or otherwise, people do want, I think people do want to come here and play and showcase their skills on this stage, I think would have been irresponsible. So, you know, when you look at what they got for a guy that, you know, it'll be, when he play, when he suits up in um, October, it'll be how many months? It'll be like a, over a year and a half since he's played a game. Um, you know, when they got the cap space and then an unprotected pick and, and another pick, I I'm okay with it. So yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, no, I I think I'm okay with it. It's like there's there's a million ways they can screw it up, and you know the, the this group is kind of guilty until proven innocent, even Perry to a degree. Yeah, but like. I feel like the road they were on just it was it wasn't going to go anywhere good. This fe- trading Porzingis feel like at the time when it happened, I was so upset. But the further away we've gotten from it, it feels actually like the least Nixie move possible. I, I completely agree, and which is why it's so frightening that that it it, it has a setup. It has a setup for the moment where yep. you're like. Uh, I'm trying to think of a moment from the show where we watched Tony and you were like, maybe he's gonna, he's gonna finally do something that shows some growth. And then, um, no. you know, he puts his fist through a wall or, or something. Um, I had, I had one more question. I was going to ask you, who, who do you think compares closest to Dolan on the show? And the only answer I could come up with was AJ. So I, I, I thought I'd scrap that one. It's little Carmine. Is it little Carmine? 
Of yeah. course, because little car, little Carmine, like he's little. And, no, no, but also little Carmine came into this wealth like he accomplished nothing, but like other than having you know a powerful father, you know, and sort of and for at least a brief time, foolishly believe, convinces himself that he's then fit to like you know be the man and run around. And eventually, he decides, all right, I'm going to retire. I'm going to go make porn films. Hopefully, at some point, I was about to say, don't are you devotes himself entirely to JD in the straight shot? So. Are you projecting your hopes and dreams here? I think that's what's happening a little bit. Uh, Possibly, little, little Carmine was also very likable too. Um, I mean, great. Look, who knows? Maybe Jim Dolan's a, a very pleasant man, but um, we certainly wouldn't know it. Um, man, this was. I, I, hey, listen, are you going to be doing um, anything for when the Many Saints of Newark comes on, or are, are you too far um, away? Well, the, the thing is, the movie, which they just changed the name to Newark. Uh, oh, just a couple the days Newark ago. Now. Okay. Yeah, um, that's not coming out until the fall of 2020. So right now, what we're talking about actually is ordinarily, I think the paperback version of Soprano Sessions would be done and maybe even out before that movie comes out. And now we're thinking, like, do we want to wait a little bit ah. and hopefully, hopefully Chase would talk to us and we would have like an extra, you know, chapter or something. In the book, it's crazy because, like, I've written a number of these books now. Like, I did one about Breaking Bad. Now they're making the sequel movie about Jesse Pinkman. I wrote, you know, part of a book called The Revolution Was Televised about Deadwood. There's a Deadwood movie coming out at the end of May they just announced today. Oh, wow. And The Sopranos, like, everything – like, nothing is ever over, even the things that you think have definitive ultimate closure. Um, You know, what is dead may never die, as they say on uh, Game of Thrones. (laughs) Um, Well – Okay, so I I have to say this before you go. You – this book was so good and I just – if anyone's out there and and is listening and has not purchased this and you've ever seen even an episode of – or you want to watch The Sopranos, buy this book and it will make your viewing experience so much better. And um, I'm just really honored because, man, you – you changed the game in terms of, you know, reviewing TV and I just – um, for someone who kind of <laughs> is obviously trying to, to break into a, a world where you just want to have your voice heard, your voice has been heard loud and clear, and it is so impactful. And um, it's just really – it was an honor to have you on here to shoot the shit. And, um, you know, I thank you for it. So this Jonathan, is great. Jonathan, I, I got to say it's been just so much fun. This has been, you know, like it, certainly record-wise the worst Knicks season of my lifetime. You know, could be the worst Knicks season ever. But it's been fun to watch because, like, I've been to a degree, I've been watching it through your eyes, and you, <laughs> and you are you are always going to be much more of an optimist than I am about this team, even though we sort of we gravitate to some of the same players. So, like, it's been great to have you like have this positive voice, but not like a Pollyannish voice. I think that there are certain people who root for teams where they're just kind of blind optimists, no matter what, and like. Uh, you hit this perfect sweet spot where, like, there's a real analysis of what's going on, but you're you're always looking at the good the good way that things could go, and maybe that's just going to set me up for more pain. But I'm, I thank you I thank you for it for now for getting me through this lousy season with this weird team I, that we have chosen to root for. I was about to say when you see me coming out with an article on July 5th defending the Boogie Cousins max contract, you will know that uh, I have turned over to the dark side. I was asking someone on a Knicks blog the other day, what is the worst possible combination of two max contracts we could sign? And it's got to be like people like who would actually get a max contract. Like you can't say, oh, "Oh, we're going to re-sign Carmelo for a max. I think it's it's Boogie and Jimmy Butler, which is kind of funny because like there is a world in which Boogie and Jimmy Butler in terms of just talent, it's like – 
You put them with certain pieces around them. Like, who knows what they could do? But they could also literally set fire to the locker room. Um, <laughs> so I don't know that I want to find out. Or maybe I do want to find out. I don't know. You no. don't want to find out. I don't want to find don't. out. Don't. Trust me on this. You yes, don't. I don't. Um, should only take you so far. Yes, I agree with that. Um, and, and on that note, um, we'll, we'll finish up. Thank you again so much for coming on. This really was great. Um, and My pleasure. Of course, everybody out there, thank you for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Uh, we'll be back with um, another one this weekend. Uh, but until then, enjoy the rest of your week. And we'll talk to you soon.